house in New Orleans. They call the rising sun, and it's been a ruin of many a poor boy. And God, I know I've won. And welcome to the show, BG and Andy calling in. We're going to do Minnesota-Michigan recap to start here. Uh, and BG, it was a tough Saturday night for us, and it's been a tough 2020. I mean, Vikings suck. Gophers are now 0-1. Uh, not a lot of positivity in Minnesota, so we'll try to provide a little bit of positivity. But first, uh, let's kind of rip on this Gopher team a little bit uh, and get into that 49-24 loss to the Michigan Wolverines, and it, it was, you know, we started the game as about as good as you can hope to start. I mean, a blocked punt by Caden Fulcom on the first uh, defensive series. Two plays later, we score a touchdown. We're up 7 nothing, and we kick the ball off to start the game. I mean, that's about as good as you can hope to start. But, I mean, from that point on, we never let again, BG, and it was all all downhill from there. Yeah, I'll add to the negative negativity before I start to and say that 2020 has been extra bad because the Twins got sweeped in the playoffs mm-hmm. against the uh, sub 500 Astros at the time. But back to the Gophers game, yeah, I was I was very disappointed um, from what I saw with our Gophers. I expected a lot more uh, with PJ Fleck as the head coach and our big guys on offense uh, returning this season. And I guess evaluating the game after and thinking about it more, I. I overestimated that our defense would be able to fill the holes that we lost out on last season um, with those on the defensive line and playing linebackers. We still have our corners and our starting nickel from last season, but it was, it was very apparent to me that the loss of the linebackers we had last season, we had three great linebackers with Thomas Barber, Kamal Martin, and Coughlin. It was a huge loss mm-hmm. um, for our defense and especially our run-stopping defense as we saw against Michigan, who ran all over us. Um, I think Michigan averaged 8.2 yards a run per, uh, for that game, and their two starting running backs averaged more than 13 yards per carry. And some of that is because they had breakout runs, but to have your two backs average more than 13 yards every single run against the Minnesota Gophers team, who had a great defense last season, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not what we wanted to see, and it's discouraging uh, for this Gophers team, and on a shortened season like like it is, it's, it's disappointing to see a team lose because there's just heightened implications and consequence of it. So not the start we wanted to see, but, I mean, I'm getting pretty used to it in 2020 with all the sports uh, that Minnesota has had so far. Yeah, we are getting used to it. We've been getting used to it uh, our whole lives, it seems like. Uh, but but like I mentioned, I mean, for, for a moment, it, it felt like it was – you know, picking up right where we left off against Auburn 10 months ago, and it felt like it was going to be this magical start to the season and a magical game uh, against Michigan. And then Zach Charbonneau touches the ball one time the next, you know, first offensive play after that touchdown by the Gophers, and he goes 70 yards untouched uh, to the end zone. I mean, it was a misalignment by Jordan Howden uh, and Benjamin St. Just on the outside, two guys that were returning. Uh, to this defense that lost seven starters uh, from last season. Two of the guys you were hoping uh, would step up in this game and make some plays for this team. 
And maybe it wasn't on them. Maybe it was on a linebacker that was misaligned. But it looked to me, and I think Harbaugh said it in the press conference after the game as well, that we were misaligned in the secondary. Uh, and clearly, if he goes 70 yards untouched without even making a cut, I mean, he went straight through whatever C gap and basically straight line to the end zone, nobody in front of him. I mean, that can't happen. Uh, that can't happen ever. And it did. And it's a big hole to, to improve on now for this Gophers team. Uh, heading to Maryland next week, which, you know, will be a much lesser opponent, but especially uh, you got to get better. We started the season poorly last year, uh, but we were winning games, and it sucks when you get blown out uh, by a Michigan team who I'll say it is really good, and they might be the best team we'll play all regular season. Maybe Wisconsin will be better than them by the end of the year. Who knows? But Michigan is really good, BG, and I don't want to underestimate how good Michigan is. Yeah, and on that touchdown run that you talked about, untouched and absolutely nobody near him. Um, and like you said, yeah, the, the defensive backs weren't lined up. And I actually, or weren't in the right holes, and I actually think that the middle linebacker, he start, he was aligned correctly before the snap and then just took the wrong gap and totally got blocked back um, where he should have been on that hole too. And he was in line correct, forget his name, but he had actually a couple bright spots for our team. Um, for the young defense that we have. But, yeah, it, it was discouraging that they ran for, I don't know, 200 yards, whatever it was, and more discouraging that you'd get four yards downfield without being touched, and those long runs, there would be nobody by us. So moving our linebackers around, especially our defensive line, moving them with ease, and just creating huge gaps for both of the running backs and pretty much anybody who ran the ball who had a Michigan jersey on. And... Stopping the run was hard enough with that, but you add on that they had a dual-threat quarterback, which definitely wasn't helping this defense, a young defense um, with new starters, which is harder to do when you have to contain a quarterback, too. So it was a tough matchup and one that I thought would be a, a close game. And as we talked about last week, one that the Gophers could have won and maybe should have won, but I guess we'll take it one week at a time. It's definitely one of the toughest games in the Gophers' history, week one. Um, when you're playing a Big Ten opponent in a rigged Big Ten team, one that was probably better than the ranking. So we'll see what we can do next week against Maryland, who was absolutely horrible, and hope to get to 500. Yeah, let's go through each, uh, you know, offense, defense, special teams here, and hear from P.J. Fleck as well. Uh, but starting with the offensive line, they had a tough night, uh, and it's tough when you're missing starters and guys are hurt, and uh, especially this year, not knowing the depth chart going into games with coronavirus and the Gophers were especially hit hard by that we'll talk about that in the specialist uh, side of things in a second here but along the offensive line missing a whole bunch of guys and BG I was watching at a restaurant so I couldn't actually hear uh, the broadcast I saw them put the graphic up uh, of the guys we had last year and who was out I know Daniel Falale didn't play I don't know who the other starter from last year that didn't play that PJ uh, references in the interview that I'm going to play in just a second here but I know we were missing several guys along the offensive line. Uh, Daniel Falale, the big one that we all know, 6'9", 400 pounds, uh, plays right tackle for us, obviously, obviously did not play uh, against Michigan. But it's tough. It's really, really tough when you're trying uh, to fill those spots, especially against a Dom Capers defense, a Don Brown defense, rather. Uh, that's, you know, he's probably the best defensive coordinator in the Big Ten. He might be the best defensive coordinator we'll see all year, and that might be the best defensive front seven we'll see all year, barring maybe a matchup with Ohio State 
but that's a really good ball club. Here's P.J. Fleck on the offensive line performance. Excuses whatsoever. I mean, it's 2020. Everybody's playing with what you have. Some have it worse than others, but there's no excuses whatsoever. Um, you know, those are two guys that have started last year. They're not there. Um, that's hard. But the other guy's got to step in and step up. You know, uh, the way we're recruiting and how we're recruiting, I mean, the program's going like that. But you still got to be able to create that depth. And I still think we're a year away from that type of depth where if two alignment go down, you can fill two alignment. I mean, remember three years ago, you know, we only had four alignment on the team. And the way that we recruit, it's going to take a while to be able to get that. Now, we had it with five or six guys last year. Like that was, and, and we stayed healthy. And, and that's the key to it. And if we didn't, we had one other guy that could sub in, and we were good with five. And for the year, we had five. Well, when you lose two of those, right, and you sit there and look at who's next, and then you lose another guy who gets hurt, um, other guys got to step in and, and go. No excuses whatsoever, though. We got to be better. Yeah, I mean, BG, do you know who the other guy he's talking about that, that wasn't in there other than Daniel Falali? I don't know the name, and I didn't see the graphic, but uh, I was curious, trying to read and find no, out who the other offensive lineman was. No, I just knew that Falahi was out, obviously. You notice when that guy is not on the field. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, I mean, hopefully you can get some of those guys healthy next week, and hopefully it's minor injuries. I know one of them had a boot on the sideline, and he was going around in a scooter. Uh, so you're probably not going to get him back. I think he was that was Dunlop. Uh, he might have been... Well, he was one of the guys that was out Dunlop, but so you, you don't expect to get him back next week. Hopefully, Falale is not you know too seriously injured, or if he has coronavirus, we don't know. Uh, but you hope to get those guys back. And, and like I mentioned before, this was a team that was very shaky to start this season. I remember going into that Penn State game eight and zero. They were saying we were the worst. You know, I, mean, I don't know who was saying this, but you know people on Twitter and stuff were saying we were one of the worst ranked teams ever. We'd beaten nobody. We'd you know, taking overtime to beat Fresno State, and, you know, we almost lost to South Dakota State, and we were the shakiest 8-0 team of all time. And then we go and upset the number four team in the country, Penn State. And so that team was not, you know, at Penn State upsetting level week one or week two. They got better in the first few weeks of the season. They got a lot better, and they got better quickly. And this offensive line and this offensive team is going to need to do that uh, as well this season. BG, moving on to the defensive side of things, it was a nightmare like we talked about, uh, that opening 70-yard run. They gave up all kinds of passing yards. Joe Milton really just picked apart that defense, and he looked like a force to be reckoned with, and this Michigan offense is really no joke. Yeah, and I will say I looked it up. Curtis Dunlap Jr. was the other offensive lineman who was out, and he was our right guard. So we're without our right um, side of the line, which is huge, obviously. We're also without our starting linebacker, Braylon Oliver. And this makes sense now that I'm looking at it. We're without our kicker and our punter. Yep. And if you watch the game, the Gophers punts were horrible. Um, and I did, I did not know he was out, but thank God that was a one starting punter for us. Um, but, yeah, the, the defense, I think, is going to dictate and influence on what kind of season the Gophers have. This year, I think when we get that offensive line back, hopefully we'll give Tanner Morgan a little bit more time so he can have a better outing than going 18 for 31 with just under 200 yards and one touchdown, one pick. Not horrible numbers, but not numbers that Tanner Morgan 
uh, wants to come up on his stat sheet, but we have Bateman, we have Mohamed Ibrahim, who had 140 yards and two touchdowns. The, the, the talent is there. The guys on the roster are there on the offensive side. It's just going to have to. It's going to have to swing to the other side on the defense. And against these tough Big Ten teams that we're going to play, these Big Ten rushing teams in the cold weather, we're going to have to stop teams and not leave it all on our offense. And we saw that um, this past weekend against Michigan when the defense just got rolled over. So hopefully we learn from week one. Our younger guys have one week under the belt, which I think is huge. One week in college, that, that tells you a lot when you're a young player. And we've got some guys who are injured, uh, back and healthy, and hopefully we can learn a little bit ourselves and take that out kind of as a practice tense, test against the subpar Maryland team. Yeah, and you mentioned the special teams, and it was evident from the beginning that something was wrong, something was missing. And like I mentioned, I wasn't listening to the broadcast, so I was just watching the game. I I figured that they had mentioned this on the broadcast, and tell me if they did, but uh, all the special teams, our first string, second string, third string kicker, our punter, and our kickoff guy all, and that's four guys that play five positions, but those four guys all at some point throughout this week uh, tested positive for COVID-19, and P.J. hints at it. I don't think he's allowed to actually say they have it, uh, but here's the clip from P.J. explaining what happened uh, to the special teams this week. I'm not going to get in specifics of, of why they missed the game, but uh, you can probably imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hit the uh, specialist pretty hard, and they hit him at different times. You know, this is – if somebody ever tests positive, you know, they got to be out three weeks, so – they could be a week apart, three days apart, two weeks apart, but it still gets you for three weeks. Uh, when you're talking about your you know, first-team kicker, third-team kicker, and then you're talking about your second-string kicker uh, just had her, uh, sports hernia surgery, and he's not really necessarily full go, so we couldn't kick full go unless it was under a certain amount of yardage for field goals. And then kickoffs, we had to do what we could with them. And then your punter has it. Your kickoff guy has it. Uh, that's hard. Uh, you know, that's why there's certain decisions made that maybe people agree with, maybe they don't agree with, but at the time, they seemed like the best decision. I mean, we had a 14-yard punt at one point, uh, and then you got to make decisions. You know, I think that we were playing catch-up, Chip. You know, we were, it was 7 nothing and 7-7, then it was 14-7, then we had the penalty on the, on the, on the one two-yard line, then it went to 14-10, uh, then it went to 21-10, then we went to 21-17, then they went to 28-17. We weren't stopping anybody. And at the time, that's when I sat there and said, well, we better fake a punt because the other one wasn't go- didn't go very far. So I either give him ball at the 50 or we take a shot and give him at the 35. And uh, just did, we didn't execute it well enough. Uh, it was there, I, I felt, but uh, I, I didn't think we executed it well enough. So, again, it's a difficult challenge, but everybody has challenges in 2020. And uh, I didn't handle the challenges well enough. Simple as that. Yeah, the special team was terrible, BG. And hearing – you know, Fleck talk about it kind of makes sense uh, when you hear those guys had COVID and then uh, the only guy you have going for you is coming off of sports hernia surgery and can only kick, you know, a certain percent. Uh, we, we did make all of our extra points and field goals, which was nice, but uh, it, it decimated us in special teams. And it, it, we, we were, you know, hammered in that. Michigan, you know, took a kickoff all the way back to the five-yard line and they ended up scoring on that drive. And that's when the game was still close. That was the end of the first quarter I think it was 14-10, and Michigan gets the ball then on the five-yard line to start their drive. I mean, you're not going to win football games 
setting up your defense like that, no matter how good or how bad they are. Uh, something's got to change next week on the special teams, and hopefully it's just these guys coming back and being healthy uh, and getting healthy from the coronavirus. Yeah, the combination of a subpar defense that cannot stop the team whatsoever and then unbelievable field position for the start of the drive, which Michigan had pretty much the whole our 15-yard punt, our fake punt that they didn't, that we did not convert, and then other than our territory, and just bad special teams play all around is, is, a, is a recipe for disaster, which we saw um, with Michigan putting up close to 50 points. I will say, uh, not related to the special teams, but about TJ Fleck, I love that he actually answers questions from reporters and gives like a detailed answer instead of just giving an answer to get through the interview and minimal responses, mm-hmm. uh, short answers, like so many players and so many coaches that we see uh, do today. It's, it's refreshing to see a coach actually care and give thorough and detailed answers for the reporters and for us as fans. It's just so much more fun, and I don't know. I, I, I look like it. Yeah, that. no, that's, that's really interesting to hear you say that because listening to that interview yesterday, I was thinking the exact same thing, and I actually had a note here to wrap up the, the gopher segment. I, I love how he an, handles the interviews because it's not just a, uh, you know, get on, get through this and get to the next week type thing. He, he handles the media yeah. uh, as a, almost a force behind him. I mean, he can use the media to his advantage. And, you know, I, I think he does a brilliant job of laying out the message he's trying to tell his team. And, and to think that these guys don't listen to what he says is, you know, nobody, nobody I don't think actually believes that they don't listen to what their coach is saying. Their coach is on TV talking. You can guarantee those players are listening. So not only is he talking to his players, but he's talking to the whole fan base. And he's saying we got to get back to work. we got to re-energize this, this team. I mean, yes, we lost. We got killed. We got destroyed. But, well, I mean, we had a lot of things go not our way before the game even started that were out of our control. All we can control is our effort and our attitude. And I think P.J. does a great job of laying that message out. Here's one last clip from P.J., uh, on moving forward with the Gophers. Play. And, 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 and I don't think, I mean, when you look at the score, I felt like we were always in that game, maybe until the last five minutes. Like I felt there was something that we could do, we could do, we could do, and we just didn't take advantage of it. We're driving down, we're inside the five, we've got to go for it on fourth down. We score there, it's 31 points, and then you never know how it shapes up. It could have been 49-38. At some point, does that make it better or worse? No, we had to do what we had to do to find a way to make, to score points, to go win the game in a very, very strange game to be able to call. Uh, and again, like I said, it's, it's things that 2020 is bringing up that maybe changed a little bit of your philosophy that you have to be able to roll with. I've never seen anything like it in college football uh, with that many specialists out um, and, uh, and other guys out. Right, uh, all up until the kickoff, but that's what the rapid testing does. And the good thing about rapid testing is it has a safe playing field. The bad thing about rapid testing is, right, one guy tests positive, no matter what it is, whether it's false positive or not, on game day, he's out. Uh, so again, they're, they're, and if they're out prior to that, it's three weeks. Uh, that's difficult, you know. Uh, you know, we're 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 rebuilding every single year. You know, we're, we're doing everything we can to reload every single year. Uh, and we got a lot of young players that have to step in. But this was, this was good for them. You asked, what are we going to do? This was, the, the loss could be the greatest thing that happened to us.
My message to them in the locker room is the loss to Michigan and the way it was could be the best thing that happened to us in 2020. That was my message. How do you move forward? That's how you move forward. Because we've got a lot to learn. We got a lot to grow from. And we did it against one of the best teams in America. So we got a lot to work on. We coach, coach for a living, right? And we'll go back to that tomorrow morning. We coach, we coach for a living, and we'll go back to that tomorrow morning. Row the boats, guy, you might go gophers. Uh, no, I think PJ's, I, I love his message, though. I think he does a great job of handling uh, the post game press conference. I think he uses it as an advantage, and I, I loved his response to that game. Uh, the Gophers opened up as 19 and a half point favorites against the Maryland Terrapins next Friday night. We'll break down that game on Thursday's show and get you ready for that Friday night matchup. Uh, Andy, we haven't forgot about you over there. Let's move on to the rest of the Big Ten. Iowa, Purdue, uh, and Iowa had the game really white, right where you wanted it, Andy, uh, with the ball up 20 to 17, six minutes to go in the game, marching down the field. And the running back, Sargent, fumbles the ball. Purdue comes up with it, and Purdue marches down the field. They score a touchdown, and, you know, Iowa never comes back from there. What happened uh, in that loss, Andy? And other than the obvious fumble at the end of the game, what went wrong throughout the day uh, for Iowa to lose that football game? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't that a lot of things went wrong. I mean, obviously that Sargent fumble. Um, Makai Sergeant fumble uh, there in the fourth quarter, and then uh, Tyler Goodson also had a fumble there uh, in the red zone for the Hawkeyes earlier there in the game. Uh, so those were two big, just momentum killing uh, turnovers for the Hawks um, on two drives that they were looking like they were going to score at least three points, if not, uh, if not score a touchdown. Um, but I mean, last week I said that I think every Iowa football game this year is going to be within a within a score and. I'm, I'm, I'm one for one so far, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, I, and I said win or loss as well. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, kind of like what PJ Fleck was saying that you know sometimes a loss can be good for you, and I think this loss is you know it's going to be good for the Hawkeyes. I think there's a lot of positive takeaway the you know, the running game that was was excellent uh, over 200 yards. Where I, I think the way that college football works, where you know the a stack is negative rushing yards for the quarterback. Uh, that worked against the Hawkeyes. So if you ignore stacks, we had over 200 yards of, of rushing, which um, is something you have to look forward to. I think the biggest disappointment for Hawkeye fans was uh, not getting Amir Smith-Marset involved at all. Uh, he didn't have a reception. He just kind of seemed off throughout the, the course of the game. I don't know if he's had COVID, if he's missed some practice, but like, he just seemed like a guy kind of almost coming off an injury. Um, or, or something where he just wasn't on the same page as, as the rest of the offense. And, you know, someone who's projected to be someone drafted in this, this coming year, uh, you know, have a couple targets and not have one reception. Uh, I, I thought he was on the phone a lot with, uh, with Copeland, our, uh, receivers coach, uh, on the sidelines throughout the game. So, I mean, I think if, if you're a Hawkeye fan, I, it's, I, I don't know what to think, honestly, as, as a Hawkeye fan. I mean, it wasn't, it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't. How was the uh, quarterback? I personally would How did he play? Petrus was, Pet, Petrus came in exactly how I kind of expected him to play. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't terrible. He wasn't, 
fantastic. He, he made some really good throws. I mean, like if you were to piece together the top 10 throws he made on Saturday, I mean, they are, you know, him going through his reads, uh, which I think is the, the biggest thing, the biggest confidence you can give any college quarterback is being able to go through his reads um, and, and make some throws in tight windows. But then, especially, you know, that last drive, he's obviously going to get hit and he has gotten hit for, for missing throws. But um, he, I, I don't know if the adrenaline was there, but he just seemed to overthrow a lot of balls. Um, and I mean, the hope is that he kind of settles down next week against uh, against Northwestern. But uh, I think, I mean, for me personally, as an Iowa fan, I saw a lot more positive from him than I saw negative. Uh, I think this is still a run first offense, which, you know, after watching that Minnesota performance this weekend, I'm feeling a lot better about playing Minnesota in a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, this is, you have your sophomore quarterback starting. As I've said, traditionally, this is a social year for Iowa football. We're kind of letting him, you know, get reps under his belt, you know, develop, you know, Iowa one of the few teams in college football to still run a pro style offense. There's still a lot to learn for him. Um, and honestly, I, I had no idea Purdue was in the Big Ten West. Big Ten West. Uh, <laughs> Like as the as, as Purdue was kneeling out, I was telling my dad, I'm like, you know what, this is fine. Like during the East, you know, at the end of the day, all that matters is is, is your record against the West. And he looks at me, and goes, Purdue's in the Big Ten West. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Purdue's in the Big Ten West. Yes, sir. I mean, if so, you had listened closer to our Big Ten was, West preview last week, Andy, you would have heard me mention <laughs> David Bell, who that, uh, torched you guys. Uh, but yeah, they are in the West, and they're good. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, speaking of David Bell, I mean, the secondary is the one part of that defense, I think, that, that needs most most work. And if you look at Kirk Ferentz, his two deeps he released well, at least today, actually. Uh, there's been some, been a little bit of reshuffling in that, um, uh, those two deeps. And um, Ferentz wasn't explicit as uh, PJ Fuss was about COVID implications with players. Um, but I think with, with the through window and, uh, the number of question marks around the uh, the secondary for the Hawkeyes. Uh, we, we really didn't know as fans you know, who was going to be the cornerback and safety coming into week one. Um, and there's already been some changes made. So we don't really know if that's COVID stuff, if you know, he's you know, kind of given up on some guys, whatever it might be. Um, but, um, I mean, going to Northwestern next week, I think, um, I and mean, I think Iowa's schedule felt pretty good for him. You know, having a, a mm-hmm. team that we knew was going to be tough against against Purdue, a, a team that uh, at least on, under uh, Coach Brown has always played Iowa tough. Um, and I mean, before because Purdue used to be in the uh, the Legends or whatever the other division was, and Purdue was Iowa's protected rivalry, even though there's absolutely no rivalry there whatsoever. <laughs> Um, but, um, but I mean, I, I've always liked since the schedule got released, I thought Iowa's schedule was the best for them. Uh, you know, a, a, a tough team that, um, isn't a, isn't a great team, but a tough team coming out the gate. And then you can't get ease into things before you get your, you know, your Minnesota's and your Wisconsin's and your Penn State. Yep. Um, but I mean, I think, 
Andy? I think a loss can be good. Oh, sorry. You cut for off for a second. And, well, I, what was that? Oh, nothing. You, you cut out there for a second. But, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. There's there's not a lot you can take off this first oh. game. I mean, it's the first of uh, of a, a weird season, a weird eight-game season for this Big Ten. But, uh, yeah, certainly a lot to still look forward to for the Hawkeyes. And you guys are two-and-a-half-point favorites um, as of right now against Northwestern next week. And that one is home. That one's at Kinnick, isn't that, Andy? I. I mean, I have no idea, but I, mean, I think at the is. end of the day, it's only uh, only family members of uh, of uh, of players. That's true. Uh, there, so I don't know how true. much that is much if you have implications. True. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think if, if this this weekend showed anything for the though for the Big Ten, it's that these teams like your Ohio State, where I mean, just the way that they recruit, they're so deep, you know. No matter what the COVID implications are, it takes a, a deep team to be able to play well. And Ohio State's by far the best team in the Big Ten. I don't think any teams even close. I'd say Wisconsin after um, uh, Mertz's performance this weekend was uh, was pretty close, but uh, now it looks like he has COVID and might be out for for a couple weeks. So, um, I mean, I, I mean, we obviously heard PJ Fleck earlier talking about the COVID. COVID implications for the the Gophers, and I think if you're a if you're the Ohio State Buckeyes, I mean, you're a, you're two deep. Are um, you gonna go three deep with some of the recruits you have as an as, a, as an Ohio State team? Yeah, um, and, and you're just set up perfectly for a season like this. Yeah, but I think um, I mean that they're definitely going to be the, the team coming out of the Big Ten this year. Yeah, I mean it helps when you're second and third string team is probably better than almost every team in the Big Ten, and that's <laughs> that's the case for Ohio State uh, mm-hmm. this season in particular. Um, let's move on to Wisconsin-Illinois. Um, we'll start working through these games here in the Big Ten. Uh, so number 14, Wisconsin, they got off to a rolling start. 45-7 they win uh, over Illinois. Graham Mertz, five touchdown passes, uh, and he was phenomenal. Like you mentioned, Andy, Jake Ferguson, uh, tight end for Wisconsin. He had himself a day, seven catches, 72 yards, and three touchdowns for Ferguson. And the Badgers look like the real deal, boys. Uh, they're going to be a tough, tough team out of the West. And, and now, I guess it flips to the question is, does Mertz have COVID, and how long is that going to keep him out? And, Andy, did yeah, you and- – go ahead. Oh, we lost Andy. His connection was going in and out. Uh, BG, you got any uh, any reaction to to the Wisconsin Illinois game? Yeah, the Wisconsin quarterback. Uh, what's his name again? Graham Mertz. Mertz. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, he went twenty for twenty-one, and he had four touchdowns for the Badgers and. He had he started off the game seventeen for seventeen, and the school record was seventeen, so he tied it um, for completions. And for the eighteenth completion, hang on, BG, game to go eighteen for eighteen. Sorry, BG, hang on, yeah. one sec. Uh, Randy, we got you back here. We're merging you into BG, and BG is <laughs> mid take, mid take. So we got to get back right back to him. 
All right, BG, keep going. Um, I was saying that if he completed his next pass, he would have gotten 18 for 18 to start the game, which would have been a Wisconsin Badgers school record. And the receiver dropped a wide open pass. No right way. In the of the chest. Oh, my So he goodness. started off 17 for 18. Then it's 20 for 21 with four touchdowns. And the Badgers, who I think, I hate to say, are going to be the top team in Big Ten West, um, steamrolled a very, very bad Illinois team. But it's, it's strange looking from the outside in at a Wisconsin team who's, and it's just a one game, so a very small sample, but a quarterback for the Badgers, finally, and they throw the ball and move the ball through the air, not the ground. Um, obviously, with no Jonathan Taylor, uh, a far left running back this year for the Badgers, we might be seeing a different style and a different type of Badgers team this season that attacks more through the air, mm-hmm. and it absolutely worked for them week one, and their new quarterback looks phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, VG, and I was hoping that, that more so that, that was because Illinois' secondary is so bad and not that Wisconsin's passing attack is so good, but it, it will be remain to be seen. I mean, Wisconsin did what they needed to do, and you know it's easier, to, it's easier said than done beating teams that you're supposed to, but Wisconsin has been beat by teams like that in the past, and they lost to uh, Illinois last year on a field goal. So good win for Wisconsin, and they were rolling. They're going to be tough out of the West this year. Let's move on to Penn State, Indiana, number eight Penn State. And this was, in my opinion, the best game of the week by far in the Big Ten and probably in college football as a whole. It was a thriller as Indiana knocked off Penn State 36-35 to in overtime uh, Indiana led that game at the half and really led all the way through. Uh, Sean Clifford struggled. He had two interceptions in the first half. Penn State lost a fumble in the first half, uh, and they really had to climb back into this game. Uh, and they end up getting a lead at the end. They end up getting 28-20 to 20 on a kind of a controversial play, whether the running back for Penn State should have scored or should have tried to eat more clock um, up by a, a, a point and with the ball inside the red zone. He ends up walking in for a touchdown. They leave a minute and about 40-some seconds on the clock, um, and, and they go down and score, uh, Indiana does, and they get the two-point conversion to force overtime. In overtime, Penn State scores first. They kick the extra point to make it a seven-point game. Indiana then scores on third and goal, uh, a sweet throw to the back corner of the end zone to tie the game, or to give them a chance to tie the game, rather, but Indiana elects to go for two, and on a controversial play, Indiana scores at the pylon with the quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., diving to the pylon, and we've lost BG as they're calling back in now. Um, I don't know why my phone keeps crashing, BG. We're just going to keep going here, uh, but Penix Jr., scores the two-point conversion to give Indiana the win. They review the play, uh, and the the call stands on the field as Indiana knocks off Penn State. Penn State fans are irate with the call, and for good reason, I think, BG. I don't know if you saw the play, but looking at that replay and seeing the pictures on social media after, it looked like that ball hit the out-of-bounds line before it hit the pylon to me. Yeah, I'm with you. I thought he was an inch short, um, just placed the ball on the turf about an inch before he got to the pylon. But I absolutely love the call, going for a two-point conversion to win the game against a ranked team. I love the call, and I feel like we got to do that. So I was glad to see him 
get that call, even though if I was if that happened to the Gophers, I would be very, very mad. Yeah, BG, controversial play for sure, and Penn State fans definitely have uh, some reasons to be upset. Big game for them next week as Ohio State comes to State College uh, for the biggest game of the season for for really both of those squads in the regular season. That will be a very fun game to watch. It's it's so unfortunate uh, that that can't be the whiteout. Uh, but we'll take what we get uh, for next week. Ohio State, Penn State cannot wait for that game. Um, let's move on to the rest of the Big Ten here. Starting with Ohio State, they pounded Nebraska 52-17 as Justin Fields finished uh, 20 for 21 with 276 yards and two touchdowns. Receiver Garrett Wilson finished with 129 yards, one touchdown on seven receptions for Ohio State. As I mentioned, they play in-state college next week against the now number 18, uh, 18 Penn State Nittany Lions. Moving on to Northwestern, they cruised to a 43-3 victory over Maryland as transfer quarterback Peyton Ramsey finished 23 of 30 for 212 yards and a touchdown. And BG, we were talking about this a minute ago, friend of the show, Ramad Chiakio Bowman, finished with five catches, 49 yards, second leading receiver for the Northwestern Wildcats. Uh, moving on now to Rutgers. They beat, they, they hung on to beat Michigan State. 38-27 in the first win for Greg Schiano and now his second stint as the head coach of the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, getting their first win in the Big Ten in a little over a year, I believe. Uh, so congrats to Greg Schiano. Um, moving on, boys, out of the Big Ten and out of college football, just a quick note here on the NFL. Um, a buddy of mine I was talking to last week from Philadelphia, he said we should have a Philadelphia Eagles segment uh, so here it is. The Eagles are 2-4-1 and one and have a half-game lead in the NFC East. Uh, that's the Eagles segment. If the Eagles can get above 500 this year, we'll, <laughs> st- we'll start providing uh, Eagles coverage. But until then, I'm just going to read off their record uh, and their place in the NFC East. BG, you have an NBA nugget for us. What do you got? Yes, I do. And if we want to do it this way, it can be a quiz, too. So... I was looking at the NBA draft, and by the way, that's November 18th, so about a little less than a month now, so actually pretty soon coming up, and it's huge for us in Minnesota because we have the number one overall pick, but it's not about the number one overall pick, it's about the draft and Minnesota players in the draft, and there's four Minnesota players that are most likely going to be picked in either the first or second round in the draft, which is just crazy for four Minnesota people players to go in one year. Yeah. Would either of you like to try to guess the order of them getting picked from last to first? Hmm. And I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I brought this up because the person who is projected to go first from Minnesota is unbelievable. I had no idea he was going to the draft. Really? Okay. Um, I'm going to be terrible at this. My mind is not in basketball mode at all. Andy, do you have any idea? Um, I I don't even know who's uh, who's eligible, but yeah, that's what uh, I was trying to think. Marcus, <laughs> I, I can't even is, remember. Is Marcus Smart the, the the projected to go uh, earliest? Say it again, Andy. Is who? Is Marcus Carr projected to go earliest? I don't even know if he's eligible. Uh, I don't think he's going to the draft. And by this, I mean 
Minnesota born in Minnesota, yeah. not necessarily. Oh, 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 yeah. oh I see. Um, man, I have absolutely no idea. Is um, is is our is our white boy from Wisconsin? Is he one of them? Brad Davidson, Buzzcut Brad. No, I don't Buzz think he. Brad, I don't yeah, think he's wrong. I don't think he's Buzz one of them. Brad is not. Not <laughs> yeah. yet. Not yet. The next guy here is Not yet. Okay. I'll just I'll just go ahead and read it. Yeah, off. I'm gonna have so, no chance, BG. Yeah, just go ahead, read them off. Yeah, and I, I was picturing Zach wouldn't have a chance either. So okay, number forty three is Trey Jones. Oh, okay. That, I should have got that from one at least. Yeah, from Apple Valley. Yep. At number thirty five is Daniel Okuru. Okay. Obviously, big guy from the Gulf, from Creighton Durham Hall. Number twenty nine, so late first round is Zeke Aji. Mm-hmm. who played at Arizona, the big guy, and yep. he went to Hopkins. And then I cannot even believe this. I still can't believe it. If you're still listening, you're not going to believe it either if you like well, At number 12 overall, Tyrell Terry. Oh, no way. He played at Stanford and who went to De La Salle, yeah. a guard. Yeah. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely yeah, should have got the I first two that, that you had, Trey Jones and Daniel Oturo. Uh, I, yeah, my mind just, it seems like that college basketball season and now like the draft eligible players, they've been just like sitting and doing nothing for an entire year. Um, but yeah, the, I, Tyrell oh, Terry, so that's, long ago. yeah, that's very surprising. Good for him. I mean, that's incredible. I, I'd be curious to see where does that, yeah. do you know where that lines up with other states uh, in terms of number of prospects out of each state? Where do we fall, uh, along that chart? I do not. But I know this, and I was going to say this at the end. There's only been one draft in NBA history that has had more than four Minnesota players drafted in a single year, and that was 1963 when five Minnesota players were drafted from Minnesota, and all five of those were Minnesota Gophers players. Oh, wow. So the starting five for the Gophers all got drafted in the draft, which, which was in the draft like that very cool bg uh appreciate that that'll be interesting to see uh moving forward here what happens with the draft now just over a month away uh let's move on to baseball here as we bring in zach briel and zach it's been a wild world series so far dodgers lead 3-2 uh after blowing game four in the ninth inning uh they they won game five behind kershaw to take this series lead uh, but but it's been a wild series, and let's start with Game Four, Zach. What happened uh, at the end of that game? Yeah. Oh man, that was uh, that was one of those one of those games that you're not going to forget um, for a couple of reasons. I know that the Dodgers they don't they don't give up leads like that. They're, the Dodgers are the ones doing that to other teams. Um, and so when you get you know I can't remember who's on the mound if it was Jansen if it was um, 
bias. Yeah, it might have been bias on the mound. You, you, they got such a dominant um, bullpen there in those later innings that it's like, yeah, especially a team like the Rays, like, all right, these guys are done. Go on game, game five, down 3-1. Um, and that, that's really what it comes down to. That, that game was everything to the Rays. Um, you know, 3-1 versus 2-2, the numbers are probably just staggering. I, I, I don't have them with me, but um, to think of, of the, the backs behind the Rays, how, um, how the Rays would have felt, you know, with their backs against the wall down 3-1. So, yeah, it, going into that last inning, I'm not going to lie, I was, I was dozing off on the cover show. I wasn't expecting a thing to happen. And then all of a sudden, um, Brett Phillips comes up to the back, comes up to the plate. He wasn't even on the roster for the ALCS. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one of those times where you're like, all right, I could turn off the TV here and I know I can get, go to sleep early and everything would be all right. And I'm sure a lot of people did that. <laughs> um, so I think it's, I think it was first and, first and third, I believe it was. Yeah, first yeah. and third, I think it was. Well, let's listen to the call here from Joe um, Buck. Hang on, I'm going to play the call quick. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Oh, we got an ad first. <laughs> um, Let's see. Here we go. Oh, this is really quiet. I don't know why it's so quiet. Well, it's super quiet. Uh, let's see. No, that doesn't work either. Well, we can't really hear the call, but I mean, that tag, Zach, was well, not even. To, let's start with the, the field. I don't know who it was out in the in right field, but terrible field on, on the play. And, and then the throw to home was in plenty of time, and the catcher just whips around and throws the ball out of his glove. I mean, that was the most amazing thing. And I was one of the people who fell asleep. Uh, I didn't see it live. I watched it the next day, and I was like, holy cow, I can't believe I didn't stay up for it. I mean, that was the most amazing finish to a baseball game I've ever seen. Absolutely. And I know Buck, yeah, he's had some hot takes in the postseason. Uh, it was either Schmoltz or Buck that said this. And, but I, I agree with him. They were like, that is probably the best World Series game that wasn't a Game 7. Um, he didn't say this, but it's probably besides the David Freeze Game 6, Cardinals down 11, but Beside the point, unbelievable finish. Yeah, probably one of the best game, non-game seven World Series games of all time. And um, finishes, should say, not games. Um, but it was a good game all, all, all together. Uh, it, it was a very good game. It, it, it was a lot of scoring and everything. Okay, oh boy. All right, let's go uh, And so what I think was, was so amazing about that is that how literally in a, in a span of 15 seconds, how much of a whirlwind that was. Um, Brett Phillips gets that hit off two, two pitches that were, were – were balls. They were they were balls, and they were close, but they weren't giving them. It wasn't a consistent call night, and he got screwed on two calls, and it was one two. And this dude has had like three at bats his whole life, and he's like, okay, how's this? You know, nothing's gonna happen here. Well, he hits him in, into the shift, even, and he gets over the shift, and like, oh my gosh! So they kind of game up, and um, Rosa Rain is coming around, and he's gonna try to score. And we're like, yeah, we're going crazy. We're standing up, we couldn't believe what's going on. All of a sudden, Rosa Rain trips. And I was like, oh, my God, what did you do that for? Now that, you know, he's going to get out and the Dodgers now have the momentum because they're, you know, the Dodgers and they'll be like, you know, just stop them short of scoring the winning run there and they'd probably score eight runs in the next inning. You know what I mean? So who knows? Well, all of a sudden, yeah, Muncie whips the ball around and maybe, was, you know, I don't think it was too fast. I don't know what it was, but the, the catcher just, he looked, looked away before he caught the ball. He did that, yeah. you know, yeah. thing they tell you not to do. and. <laughs> With a little in right behind him, you could see David Roberts just so, so mad. He was, he was yelling. 
and Rosalina just slides like right, like slowly into home, and I was just we were just going crazy, throwing things, and it was um yeah, man, that was just the biggest whirlwind of a fifteen seconds of a game you could ever you could have ever ever seen. So that was that was special. And I'm happy the Rays did that, and not the Dodgers on the Rays. Yeah, it was exciting. It made it way more of a series, obviously now, but Dodgers. Up 3-2 in the series, like I mentioned, and they seem to be in control of it, barring any sort of excitement like we saw in Game 4. Uh, do you still expect the Dodgers to win this series? I do. Yep. I think, um, yeah, I, I would I would even assume they're going to close it out this game. I know they'll have Snell going, I believe, although Snell was in the bullpen Game 4. I don't think he pitched. I don't think that would matter regardless. I think they're, they're throwing everything they got him. Because they need to, they're down three two. Um, but yeah, they're gonna throw Snell, and I think it. I think who's up next to them is a lesser, lesser Dodgers pitcher, and I can't remember who is gonna be. Goslin, or what? I can't remember his name. Um, but that said, I think the. I think it's gonna be tough. Maybe it goes to Game Seven. I don't know, but I'm to answer your question in a long-winded way. Dodgers, Dodgers still have it. Yep, and we'll keep an eye on that the rest of the series, and have you come on maybe on Thursday. Uh, to recap a World Series if the Dodgers can win Game 6. Zach, let's move on here. New segment on the show. We previewed it last week. It's the tales of Ramble and Ricky. And I'll just leave it at that and let you take it from there. Awesome. Appreciate that, Bill. Yeah, I've been thinking about this all day. I'm super excited for this one. Um, I think it's going to be a real hit, and I don't think I'm afraid of you setting the bar too high. I think we got an awesome story. Um, Totally it. You know, unsure of what, what this uh, segment's going to entail, but it's going to go something like this, I think. Uh, and interrupt me if you need to. Otherwise, let's just let Random Ramblin' Ricky do his thing. Hang out with that. Amen. Um, so I guess we're going to start. Um, BG and I have talked about this a little bit um, briefly, and this story, I just, I was in a rabbit hole today. I was just couldn't believe what I was seeing um, on some of these um, some of these stories and conspiracies, and I love conspiracies. Um, and Maybe we could turn this into like the conspiracies of things when Ricky, who knows? But they're not my conspiracies. Okay. I'm just telling you. Um, so basically, what this one revolves around um, is uh, it's, it's a mixture of fact and conspiracy here, as all conspiracies are, but there's a lot more conspiracy to fact here. However, there's really no way to disprove this, though. It's kind of cool. It's going to be up to you know the listener here to decide on the parts they want to believe, the parts they deny. The, you know, There's really no way to disprove this thing. Um, and it's also cool because it kind of fits the whole new vibe, you know, the mood. And it's just a perfect time to get to the story. So let me stop talking about doing other stuff and let me just get into the story. Here. Hang on, Zach. Um, can you uh, uh, move your phone a little bit? It just started sounding very muffled. Yep. Oh, yes. Is this better? That's a little better, yeah. Maybe keep moving it around sure. a little bit. Keep trying it. Yeah, that's a lot better for me. Okay, yeah. Maybe. A lot better for you. Um, should I try put should I try putting on speaker? See if that sounds a little better? Yeah, you can try speaker. Let's give it a go. Does this sound does this sound better at all? I think it does. Does it sound better keep, for you, BG? Keep talking a little bit more. Keep yeah. talking. Hello. Um, hello, hello. Does this sound better at all? Hello. Um, yeah, I think that sounds pretty good. I, yeah, it's it's better, I think. Yeah. All right. Keep... You were you were be- you were right you were better right before you went off. Yeah, you were uh, good in the beginning. Before you went on speaker, I think. Before we started, like huh. when we first yeah, started, try. you were good and then it got muffled, like right as you started getting into your story. Couldn't couldn't really understand you. Okay, here we go. I, yeah, I have a bad habit of moving my phone around and walking around and stuff. All right, that's bad. Ba- so let me, uh, right let me just stay here. Is this, is this perfect? Okay, I won't move. I will not move. <laughs> okay. 
So story starts with a guy named Robert Johnson. Um, and Brady G, like I said, might be familiar with this. It's probably not a household yeah. name, um, but he's one of, and I, yeah, Brady G, I think he took a class on and learned about him. Uh, he's one of, one of, you know, guitar's early pioneers. Um, many consider him to be one of the greatest blues musicians that whoever lived, um, just because of his inspiration and he, he inspired uh, legends such as Eric Clapton and Keith Richards um, and many, many others. Just with this style, was so unique and never, never been heard before. Um, and, but his popularity really was, his work gained uh, popularity, I guess, in the 1960s. Um, even though all of his recording and performing was done in the 1930s. And I think that was due to like, new music technology at the time that came out in the 60s or whatnot. But um, anyway, he was born, um, born in Mississippi, 1911. Um, and he was the alcoholic stepfather. He used to move around, all these different things. Um, but he moved around in an area known as the Mississippi Delta. Um, and they called the Mississippi Delta Blues, which is an era of music, rock and roll music that was, wasn't called rock and roll, it was Delta Blues that it was called. Um, and this was also known as the Devil's Blues, um, due to the idea, I think, at the time of many believed that, um, anyone who was like associated with this kind of music had ties with the devil. Um, and I guess this is a perfect lead into the story, um, because that legend tells us that in 1930, uh, when Robert, he was only 19 years old, he'd play in these places called juke joints. Um, and it was, Places, you know, imagine, picture a stereotypical scene, you know, old South Mississippi music hall, and a man playing a twangy guitar and a eerie sounding voice, kind of. Maybe that's just a picture I have. Who knows if anyone else pictured that. But, um, but apparently he would be booed off stage um, because he would, he was like such an amateur guitar player, and people would boo him off and he would be um, ridiculed for how bad he was and, and all that. So, um, and this is kind of where the story gets really strange. He was, um, there was a time where he went to a music hall and he was booed off. And then no one saw him. There was a, there's, so there's different reports, but no one saw him for it. was between two weeks, some for years, some reported that no one, no one heard from him, a word from him in three years. Um, and like I said, the truth to these stories, you know, these are conspiracy theories for a reason, but this is what my eyes were having heard. Um, and so when he returned, the next time he returned to any of these places where anyone saw him in a public setting, um, like he, the legend has is that he pulled out a, a guitar with seven strings and he started to play the guitar like no one had ever heard. And in quotes, someone said that it sounded as if there were three total, three total different guitar sounds and styles that were coming out of his guitar at one time. Um, and so I'm going to take a little break here. And there's another subject to this story, which I was, like I said, I was in a rabbit hole. Um, so remember where we left off there, um, a man, and this is, this is where I was kind of blown away because have you guys ever seen the movie, Old Brother Where Are Thou? Yeah, I promise I'm not getting off track here. This is, this is relevant. I have not heard, I've seen the movie, but I've heard of it. Okay. Okay. So it's, uh, it's Coen Brothers film, which is cool because they're, you know, right in the famous parts from cities, uh, directors there. Um, but they did a movie and you guys got to watch that movie. Unbelievable unrelated to the story that's just unbelievable movie. Um, but there's a man named Tommy Johnson and he's in this movie and he's a, a Delta blues musician, um, just like Robert Johnson was. Um, uh, what's it called? Yeah, just the musician during that time in the twenties, twenties uh, and thirties. Um, he's portrayed in this movie as a blind guitar player. He joins the three main characters in the film. They go on an adventure and he leads to them recording a successful song. I, I won't tell you anything about the movie. You just got to watch it yourself. Um, but anyway, yeah, 
I just I just thought that was that was relevant to the story because it's the same guy. I thought they were referring to Ronald Johnson, but they're referring to a guy named Tommy Johnson, and they're, they're super similar. And the crazy thing is, they have very very similar stories. So he was born nearly really twenty years before Robert Johnson, um, and he was a, a Delta Blues, a Delta Blues musician who reportedly had a very eerie and unmistakable sound about him. And people said it was like unsettling and breathtaking, or whatever. And um, I, I haven't heard him, so I, I couldn't tell you from myself, but. Um, so they, uh, uh, what's it called? Tommy, oh yeah, Tommy, so he was born in, uh, in early 1800s in Mississippi, rose to fame probably 10 years prior to Robert Johnson, um, right about 1920 and had a successful career that probably lasted 30 years. And that's the difference between him and, him and uh, Robert Johnson, which I'll get to, which we'll get back to in a second here, but his style and his like ability inspired a bunch of people too, but not as. He wasn't as famous as Robert Johnson. That's why I'm so surprised to hear about this in the story. Um, so the main comparison between these two guys, um, apart from like the upbringing and their musical ability, um, pretty much lies within the way they acquired their ability. And this is a long-winded way of just saying that this legend says that both men you know, went to a crossroads in Mississippi, not at the same time, and I don't think they're the same like, physical location, but it's cool that a crossroads is in reference to both an intersection of two roads, um, but also an intersection, a junction between two worlds. Um, and this has been referencing in rock and roll and, and many times, um, but the legend has that both of them in the dead of the night went with their guitars to meet with the devil to make a deal. And Tommy Johnson, so Tommy Johnson's guy I'm talking about, he was one before Robert Johnson. Um, Tommy Johnson had a, he had a heart attack in 1956 and his brother was uh, interviewed it in an article in 1966, and he's had this to say about his name. Um, and there were there were rumors beforehand, it, it sounds like, but this is really when the, the um, conspiracy started flying. So he said, and this is his words, not mine. So if he says something kind of offensive, I'm not saying it. Just you know, he said, if Tommy was living, he'd tell you. He said he was the reason. He said the reason he knew so much. He said he sold himself to the devil. I asked him how. He said. If you want to learn how to play anything, you want to learn and play how to make songs for yourself. You got to take your, uh, got to take your guitar. You got to go where a road crosses that way, where a crossroads is. Get there. Be sure you get there a little before twelve o'clock that night, so you know you'll be there. Learn the guitar and be playing a piece there by yourself. A big black man will walk up there and take your guitar and he'll tune it, and then he'll play a piece and hand it back to you. That's the way I learned to play anything I want. He said that Tommy told him. Um, and so after reading that, I was like, I was shocked. I was like, no way. That's unbelievable because of how closely they resembled Robert Johnson. And this is where the story gets super, super crazy. So let's back to Robert here. Are you guys, let me know if you guys are following Danny Danny. Is there any explanation? Okay. Well, let's just, let's, let's just stop and recap because it is kind of hard to, to hear you at some points just over the phone. And maybe we'll, next week we'll have a, little different production of how we go about this so we can get the audio a little cleaner beforehand. Um, but basically at this point okay. we have, we have Robert Johnson and Tom Johnson. Is that the two guys, right? Tom, yep. Tommy Johnson. Yep. Tommy Johnson. Okay. And so Robert Johnson, he's, there's this story about him making the deal with the devil to be a better at guitar. And he goes to this, and where I, I couldn't really understand where you said he went to. He went somewhere at midnight oh, yep. and a crossroads. A crossroads at midnight, or a little before midnight, a big black guy came out. He handed him his guitar. The guy tuned his guitar, 
gave it back to him, and then all of a sudden he said he knew knew how to play all these songs. That's correct. Okay. Yep. And that's where we leave off, and that's Tommy Johnson. That's according to his brother who said that. And it was, mm, okay, that's were, his um, brother's account of what um, happened to Tommy Johnson. Gotcha. Correct. Yep. Any relationship to Tommy Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's far, far down the line, but I think there's a relation. <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Any, anything else I need to clear up? Because I think I, I was rambling a little. Maybe I'm rambling too much for this segment. No, I, I like it so far. I mean, I think we if we get the audio better, this could be a great segment. And you're doing good so far. So I think just keep rolling. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. This is where the story kind of gets loud. Um. So we left off with Robert Johnson. We come back. He sent us on the seven-string guitar. And he'd been playing it like there were three separate guitar players playing at the same time. And that's what people have reported from the time. And that has been quoted. Um, but people were obviously super confused that would happen because, you know, it was either two weeks, a year, two years earlier. And that's where it gets really dicey and, and different counts. Um, they were like, um, you know, how did this happen? How did an amateur guitar player, how do you turn it around in such a short amount of time? And especially the level he was playing at. Um, so the story of Robert, which is why I think this is so cool and fascinating, has a, it has a specific location tied in with it um, that makes it um, just feel more of a real story, even if, you know, like I said, these are conspiracy theories. Um, but it said that at midnight, he went down to the crossroads of Highway 49 and 61 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And this location has been up for debate. Um, but that's the location that most stories go with. Um, and he let the devil tune and play a few songs on his guitar in exchange for his soul. And this was not mentioned in the Tommy Johnson um, one, but I assume if you make a deal with the devil, he wants your soul. That's a whole other ball game. But anyway, this one in this story, it's mentioned that he played a few, they'll play a few songs, gave it back in exchange for his soul. And by doing so, Tommy, uh, Robert Johnson is said to have acquired the framework, quote unquote, for what is considered blues rock today, um, and what Clapton played and what he played with those guys, or everyone that came before last played, but after him. Um, and the thing that makes this story super strange is what happened at the end of his life, and it deals that, his, that the details that surround his death were entirely unknown. Um, I mean, at 30 years, I think 30 years went by after his death before any public record of his death was really acknowledged. Um, which gives this room, which gives this story so much room for conspiracy. Um, and in, in 1938, he died of an unknown cause, and the burial site is unconfirmed to this day. And there are multiple locations that claim his burial, but it's not for certain where his body lies. And again, how he died in the first place, um, which many people believe are you know, a number, number of different possibilities, but one of the main reasons. You know, cause of the death that people think is that the devil himself came back and took his life because he sold the soul of the devil and either way if something adds um, something else that kind of adds this legend to is that he's known as the first member of the 27 club um, and that's, an, uh, that's a club I don't know if you guys heard about uh, actually ended up the musicians who have died at the age of 27 and due to drugs and other, other things like that and yeah. he's also known as one of the most famous members in that so yeah hang on you, you can you know, start kind of to try yeah, it started kind of mumbling there. 27 Club is famous people who have died at the age of 27. Is that what you were saying? Yep, yep. And he's, uh, he's the first member of that club. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people that died at 27 before mm-hmm. him, but 
he's really what start, had started that club, and he's one of the most famous members. But like I said, he's not a household name. Mm. Um, and there's been other explanations to give this this a try, and, and you know, they lived a hundred years before us, both those guys, and it's hard to say exactly what happened. I'd like to think that they just practiced really hard, and they were really, really talented guys. And I don't want to discredit them or their families or anything like that. But at the same time, I think these stories, I think they're just super entertaining. Um, and I just love, love, love reading about these kind of things. So that's what I have for you today. And I hope, uh, hope that was, uh, hope that excited you guys as much as it did me. I love it. No, that's super interesting. And I, I think if we have better audio and it's easier to hear you, it's, it'll be even better. And I think it's a good place to start though. Very interesting. The, uh, the conspiracy awesome. there. Awesome. Yeah. It's un- unbelievable. And that's the thing too, where if something like that happened today, there's going to be something that disproves it. You know, 10 times out of 10. And I'm sure what happened back in the day, you know, one of the theories is that he was poisoned by someone's, uh, someone's husband, I think it was, you know, but there's just no way to know now. And God himself knows right now what happened, but other than that, no one else does. And I think that makes those things super, super fascinating. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I know we've talked about the story before, Zach, and I've heard, or Randall and Ricky, and I've heard about the story before, and I know most people don't and don't even know his name, but rock and roll as we know it today would not be the same without him, without somebody that nobody's ever heard of, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Like He formed rock and roll into what Mick Jagger, the Beatles, all those huge bands, um, eventually got famous for and it's crazy and I, when you yeah. talked about him I looked up a quote from Eric Clapton and Eric Clapton is a huge fan and was inspired by him and he said uh, Eric Clapton once wrote that Robert Johnson's best songs have never been covered by anyone else at least not very successfully because how are you going to do that <laughs> which speaks now awesome. coming from one of the best guitar players ever Eric Clapton wow that's amazing can you imagine if, if Robert Johnson lived at college during like the sixties or sometime during, you know what I mean? Like maybe that adds to the legend that he was back in the thirties, but just think if you had him on, you know, solid recording and we had video of him and all these things, like how different would that be? But yeah, that's yeah. pretty crazy. That it's a pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. I think it definitely uh, adds to it in a fun way. It's just kind yeah, of like the theory of hearing him on like a crafty record and not knowing yeah. about him. It's, it's a good story. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Our first installment so. of, of the Tales of Ramble and Ricky. Maybe we'll try Zoom next week or Skype or something, but I, I think that was an awesome story, and I, I love to keep doing this. We're just going to have to get away so we can hear you a little better, uh, and then we can have a better conversation about it. But uh, a great first story and a great awesome. first segment for, for the, tales, the Tales of Ramble and Ricky. We'll be back. Appreciate that, my man. Yeah, do you think it's the uh... – Yeah, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm I was just saying, there you go. Yeah. well, this is, this is the difficulty of podcasting with a phone because there's like a two second delay, so I never know if you guys are going to say something else or if I should just wrap the show. But yeah, you got something to say? Go ahead. No, you're totally good. No, I was just going to say, do you think, because there's no way, no way for me to know, I guess, because like I said, I was rambling, rambling the whole time, but is the audible salvageable or do you think it's, uh, oh no, we can, yeah, we're, we're, no, we're going to run this. To me? Yeah, we're going to run this for sure. Are you going to tell us over again, Zach? What's that, Brady? Are you going to sell the whole thing over again? Does that work? <laughs> <laughs> no, 
If no. I need to, I must. But I just, no, we'll I really this, lost is, my this is all going on the show. Everything that that we're saying right now is going to be on the episode, uh, and we're just going to run this whole thing. You can definitely hear hear you, and I think you can get enough out of it and hear the story. And it's a very interesting story and a good mystery uh, and conspiracy, as you mentioned, uh, behind you know one of the most famous musicians that you probably never heard about. Uh, very cool story, and we'll uh, keep working on the production of that. Uh, good to go next week with another one, Zach. Perfect. That works for me. I love it. I mean, if you're good to do, I know it's probably a lot of reading and, and background work that goes into telling those stories, but if you're good to do it, I'd love to keep 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 it going here. Absolutely. If you guys are down for it, I, I love doing this. It's super interesting to me. So as long as people don't mind me just talking to you about it, absolutely. Perfect. The tales of I mean, Randall Nobody's and listening Ricky. to it at this point, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> and on that good note, point. we'll end it for this week. We'll be back, or for this for this episode, rather, we'll be back later this week with pick segment and preview of all the games next week. Uh, a full recap, uh, or a full preview of all the games, and maybe a recap of the World Series. Day after day, all. I'm more confused. And I look for the light in the pouring rain. You know it's a game I hate to lose. I'm feeling strange Oh, ain't it a shame Oh, give me the beat, boys And free my soul I wanna get lost in your rock and roll And drift away Give me the beat, boys And free my soul I wanna get lost in your rock and roll And drift away Won't you take me away Yeah Beginning to think that I'm wasting time I don't understand the things I do The world outside looks so unkind I'm counting on you Carry me through Oh, give me the beat, boys And free my soul I wanna get lost in your rock and roll And drift away Give me the beat, boys And free my soul I wanna get lost in your rock and roll And drift away Won't you take me away My mind is free, you know melody can move me, and when I'm feeling blue, the guitar's coming through to soothe me, thanks for the joy that you've given me. I want you to know that I believe in your soul oh, yeah. Rhythm and rhyme and harmony You help me along Now making me strong Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul I want to get lost in your rock and roll And drift away
drift away. Don't, don't, don't. Give me the beat, boys. Free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Don't you take me away.